This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at how New Zealand's longest-lasting magazine is back again online and bringing back what was for so long New Zealand's longest-lasting columnist who was doing her thing before the internet was a thing. Almost. And how point scoring over our problematically poor productivity ended up obscuring the actual point of pointing it out. But first, we look at how the media marked a milestone this week in the run-up to the election in October by pointing out something of a millstone for the opposition's efforts to win it. Kia ora, good evening. We are officially 100 days out from the election, so what are the big issues for voters? One News was out across the country to find out what matters most to them and how they think election 2023 is going to shake down. That was how TVNZ's One News at Six kicked off last Thursday night, after which Benedict Collins went to places around the North Island to ask people, who our political reporters routinely refer to as voters, to ask what would determine their vote. And, like many of his peers, Benedict seemed convinced that one of those things would be the personalities of the two major party leaders. The Waikato public weighing in on the Chris's, both Luxon. Yeah, not persuaded about Luxton yet, but um, the other one's proving himself as he goes. And Hipkins. He's had a few issues inside his um, department. I think he needs to iron a few of those issues out. He's in a bit of... What do you think of Christopher Luxon? Average. The man himself, though, full of beans. Uh, we are now 100 days away from the election, and i got to tell you, we are fired up and ready to go. But Benedict Collins and TVNZ are not alone in having this intense focus on Chris Hipkins and Christopher Luxon. For weeks, the New Zealand Herald, for example, has been giving out a Chris of the Week award to the one that they think has outshone the other, though they seem to have dropped the accompanying cartoon lately of the pair wearing superhero outfits. And the major political polls always ask people, who's your preferred Prime Minister, even though we don't actually vote for a Prime Minister, and these days more than a third of people don't or can't actually answer that question. And seeing as the performance and profile of our party leaders seems to be such a major for our media, as Hayden Donnell now reports, they're certainly still making a big deal of the way the national party leader is cutting through or not. We are encouraging him to try and um, do some more photo opportunities. We had that um, boxing um, scenario a few weeks ago and people need to get to know him. That's TVNZ political editor Jessica Much Mackay delivering some frank political advice for National Party leader Christopher Luxon during a panel discussion on RNZ's morning report late last year. The idea that voters haven't got to know Luxon has become a kind of received wisdom in the press gallery and political circles. This is newsroom political editor Joe Moyer citing some on-the-street evidence for the theory on the site's weekly podcast Raw Politics back in April. Certainly I do my best to talk to people in the regions, um, have done a bit of that lately and you know these are people who are a little bit tuned into politics but not you know madly like we are and they still say they don't know who Chris Luxon is and what he stands for. That sentiment hit the headlines again this week after Luxon was confronted on his his lack of cut-through with the public by cafe owner Michelle Cam during a carefully choreographed walkabout in Tawa. Here she is recounting the conversation to News Talk ZB's Nick Mills later that day. I just feel like I never see him out. Like It, it always seems to be Labour that you see on TV and you see um, doing stuff in, in the media. But I feel like you need to get to know him more. Like We need to know what he's about. Well, he was a good guy, and he said he is travelling all around um, up north and stuff, talking to businesses and people. 
So yeah, I just I just feel like he's quite quiet. Luxon MP say the same thing. On Mill's show, Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis told him people just need to see the 24-7 Luxon she does. People don't really know him. Nicola, how embarrassing is this now? It's, I mean, he, we must know him by now. Shell uh, was really passionate. She shared with us how hard it's become for her to manage her business. And I think all she wants is for more people to support National. Uh, and having met Chris, she was just really clear, more people need to get to know you. Uh, and I think she's right. The more people get to know Chris, the more people hear National's plans, the more support we will get in this election. So um, I didn't find it at all embarrassing. It was a really positive um, engagement. In March, National's health spokesman Shane Retty blamed a poor preferred Prime Minister result for Luxon on voters not sharing his up-close, all-hours experience of the party leader. This is what he had to say to RNZ. I see the man that you don't see. I see the man after hours and get to have those conversations. And I think if New Zealanders can see that, they'll be as impressed as I am. There are still many parts, many facets of Chris Luxon to be revealed to the public, and I'm impressed, and I stand behind him. The people don't know you line is so regular that Luxon appears to have developed a stock response to it. This is what he told One News at Six back after that same poll in March. People you know, know what I've done. They still don't know exactly who I am. And here he is again talking to presenter Rebecca Wright a month later on News Hub Nation. You've been National Party leader now for a year, and yet somehow people still don't feel like they really know you. That is what I hear. Yeah, Why look, is that? I, well, I think it's, um, it's an interesting one because I think people know what I've done, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily know who I am. All this begs the question, what actual evidence is there that people don't know Luxon? The answer is some, but not all that much. There's those aforementioned comments from the street, and last year, NewsHub compiled a word cloud of its poll respondents' takes on the major party leaders. Don't know and unknown were Luxon's two top results, followed by good and average. But that was eight months ago. Luxon has now been in his job for more than 18 months. He's been ubiquitous in the media, fronting Morning Report and Breakfast with Mike Hosking every week and turning up for a host of regular TV news slots. He posts often on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and must be at least considering signing up to Threads. All this is to say, it seems implausible that people haven't picked up anything about him. As the song goes, If you don't know me by now, you will never, never, never know me. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh. Or, as the New Zealand Herald's Michael Nielsen put it to Luxon on the streets of Tower. We've been hearing that for months. So what's been going on? Oh, look, I think it's happening. I mean, we're out and about and doing these regional back-on-track tours. We've had some fantastic sessions, and it's a great opportunity for people to get to know me. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to have a bit more time rather than just the, the three- to six-second soundbite uh, on the news each night. Perhaps this narrative is so persistent because Luxon literally can't be perceived or known. Maybe he's made of some kind of dark matter which can't be observed directly but only inferred from the physical objects moving around him. But, but it seems more likely that Nationals leader has revealed slivers of his true self over the last year and a half. As such, it could be time to take what he's presented to us 
at face value and stop reading the tea leaves on voters' minds and mining for more revelations about his real innermost character. After all, in the end, it isn't most important whether we, to use Luxon's words, know him or just what he's done in the past. As leader of the opposition heading into a very winnable election, our paramount concern is what he plans to do in the future. Hayden Donnell there looking at the leader of the National Party's media dilemma as the media mark 100 days to an election in which they seem to think the party leader's personal popularity will play a pretty big part. These days, the high cost of living is the backdrop to a lot of our news and politics, so last week's rise in the price of petrol was a tough one for motorists who really rely on their cars. And that was the reason TVNZ One News devoted almost the first 10 minutes of the bulletin to it on the last night of the fuel excise discount, introduced like this on One News by Jack Tame as a bright red virtual sports car pulled up alongside him in the studio. Kia ora, good evening and buckle in. In just under six hours' time, we will all be paying more at the pump. The cost of filling up a car like this here is going up. And there was plenty more where that came from that day and before it and after it. I looked at that last Wednesday on Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Mark Leishman here on RNZ National. And we also looked at the frenzy over the conduct of two prominent politicians which hit the front page of the Capitals Daily The Post, an allegedly angry Cabinet Minister, Kitty Allen, and the self-confessed tipsy Mayor of Wellington, Tori Fano. It was just a private dinner with a friend. Were your eyes bloodshot? No. I wasn't wearing makeup. Maybe that's what half the problem was. That's all in this week's Midweek Media Watch. If you missed it, you'll find it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll also find it for free wherever you download your podcasts. New Zealand Listener magazine is, by any measure, a stayer. It was first published as the Journal of the National Broadcasting Service back in 1939 as a weekly guide to what's on the radio. And it built up a huge circulation in following years thanks to its monopoly on broadcasting listings, which also guaranteed a big readership for its coverage of current affairs, politics and culture. In the 1990s, it was sold to the New Zealand Herald's publisher back then, Wilson and Horton, and after that, it fell into Australian hands, along with most other New Zealand magazines. Now, back in 2012, the offshore owners launched the listeners' first website, offering access to the articles before the magazine turned up in subscribers' mailboxes or on the shop shelves, and it also offered exclusive stuff online, only available to those subscribers. Putting up a paywall, but pulling down the time wall, they said at the time. And the critical reception was quite good, though the listener struggled to keep it going and it fizzled out before the magazine changed hands again. And when the German publisher Bauer Media bought it, the listener's content then got folded into a new website called Noted, along with stuff from Metro, North and South and other magazines. But after Bauer suddenly shut down all its magazines here when we went into COVID lockdown in 2020, the entire online archive of the listener vanished, much to the anger of subscribers who paid for it, not to mention the journalists who created it. Now, the Listener magazine returned in late 2020 under new local owners, almost exactly as it had been before, but a bit more thinly staffed. And a year ago, it began sharing articles online with the website of its former stablemate of 30 years ago, the New Zealand Herald. And now, digital subscriptions to the Listener are once again available via the Herald's online platform. 
Last Monday, the listener editor Kirsty Cameron said the digital subscriptions would offer exclusive online-only articles, such as its list of 100 intriguing New Zealanders and a special series by investigative journalist Rebecca McPhee called Hardship and Hope, which is supported by philanthropists Scott and Mary Gilmore. And treasures from the archive are also promised, said Kirsty Cameron, and new online-only columnists. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, one of them has, like the listener itself, a pretty long track record. When Sideswipe ended in May, the question on some people's minds was how it had survived so long. The New Zealand Herald column collating quips and oddities from around the internet and sometimes from its readers ran for 21 years. When it started, the World Wide Web was still in its dial-up era. There was no Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit or TikTok. Even MySpace didn't exist. When those platforms came along, some predicted Sideswipe's demise. Jokes and quirky news were not just easy to come by on social media, they often arrived unbidden in a torrent. But Sideswipe kept trucking along in spite of that, outlasting every other column in the country and a number of media outlets, from BuzzFeed News to myriad local papers that Big Tech did manage to murder. Even its actual death in May hasn't been permanent. Sideswipe has emerged, Jesus, or perhaps cockroach-like from the grave, finding a place in The Listener under a new name and a Samways digital bonfire. I asked Samways how she managed to concoct such an enduring formula in the face of online headwinds. Kia ora, Anna, and welcome to Media Watch. Hi there, guys. First time, uh, first time participant. Took you 21 years to give me a call, Hayden. I'm so sorry. 21 <laughs> years is a very long time. And I guess this, the question some people will ask is not necessarily why it ended, but how did you hold out for so long against the buffeting winds of the internet that was offering a lot of the same kind of content, the quips, jokes and quirky stuff? I think the thing is that I just it, it, st- it started before all that happened, so I think I had a, a captive audience who couldn't be asked, um, you know, finding their own content, so they wanted it curated for them because they're busy people and, you know, you have to scroll through so much to get the gold, you know what I mean? So I think that's partially why it worked. Yeah, I guess you're similar to a news editor in that sense. You're just curating the most exciting of all the events that are happening in the country. You're curating the best of all the quips that you see out there. Yeah, and it's also just getting the right tone, not being too celebrity focused helped the column and trying to get um, as much local being down to earth and not being horrible because the internet is a nasty nasty world out there and I think I think that really made made a difference for Sideswipe Um, and just being that snackable size too I mean I don't know about you but I hardly have time to wade through a 3,000 word story Uh, and I just want to get the guts of it or the guts of something and I think um, yeah we've really done the whole snackable media thing it was a real pioneer as far as that went because of my short attention span. Such a benefit such an such a boon when you're (laughs) what was your process for sourcing content with Sideswipe did you have a go-to list of sites or anything like that? Yeah I had a go-to list of sites um, and I had some regular contributors and you know Sideswipe started out and it would actually break news stories. There were things that people would send that perhaps the paper wasn't brave enough to sort of put in their mainstream offerings. The kind of 
dipping your toe in the water thing, you could just do that with Sideswipe and then get a response. So it became a, a sort of a dialogue. Um, nowadays, because we have unlimited pages, the content is just so massive. Sideswipe is a place to go where you could see little bits that have been curated for you and not have to wade through that massive tsunami of other stuff. You mentioned that you had regular contributors. Is, is part of its success over such a long time, you outlasted just about everyone, is part of its success down to that community that you formed pretty early on? Well, I think the contributions got less and less as social media developed because you could actually have your own opinion and share it on your Facebook, on your Insta and all those things. Because it went on for so long and I did engage with the readers and I think it felt like a community. I think that sort of stuff is really important because otherwise you're just the faceless media or you're Mike Hosking. Which wasn't your intention. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want to be a, a, a shit stirrer. Can you t- what can you tell us about the end? Oh, look, there were tears. Murray was crying. And I said, look, Murray, it'll be okay. You'll find a sports photo for the back of that pay- page. And, you know, no, look, it was honestly, it, it, after 21 years, you can't really look a gift horse in the mouth. And I think media has to evolve and, you know, these platforms have to change. And it was its time. And I was doing it because, you know, I loved it and I, it was part of me for so long that I thought, right, I'm not going to, I'm just going to do this until it, it dies its natural death. And I think that was this year. It, it, what do you think precipitated the death? Was it just that finally social media won? You were murdered by the internet. Uh, my understanding is there was still a, a, you know, a decent amount of engagement, decent amount of readers. I think like everything in media these days, it comes down to money and you've only got a limited amount and you've got choices to make. And you make choices based on what you think is going to be most profitable for your organ. And that wasn't you anymore. You've actually experienced a resurrection already, though. Anna Samway's Digital Bonfire, that's running in the listener. Is the Digital Bonfire going to adjust the side swipe formula at all? Oh, no, it's definitely not side swipe. I can feel it already, having done a couple. Um, it's weekly for a start, so I feel like it can be um, more considered and bit more sort of investigative sort of stuff on a very low <laughs> on a snippet size sort of um, thing and, and much more of my opinion which saves me ringing talk back at night so that's a good thing. I think of it you know the opinion side of it is quite interesting now that because we need more middle-aged lady opinions don't we? Well we kind of <laughs> sort do. Sort of like I, as being the thinking man's Kate Hawksby for example <laughs> I think that's a good descriptor. I, I, that's, that's a great new moniker for you maybe they can sell that. <laughs> How much does the listeners slightly more, just being euphemistic here, a experienced audience, I guess, factor into its decision to host you there? So maybe these these uh, listener subscribers are not as online as other media audiences. Oh, look, I wouldn't have any idea about the thinking behind it. I guess they just saw someone who had a following, was lounging around and not doing much. Um, so they thought they'd try and reinvent it. Would you have liked a bit more of a bit more fanfare after twenty one years? And maybe that's a tough question, but from NZME, given your long service, I think the thing is when you've been you know doing something every day for twenty one years, but off site. I was a contractor and I worked from home for well most of that time. The reason it, I think the reason it lasted so long was it started, and I came into the building and it was lots of journalists contributed to things that they couldn't put in these stories, little bits of gossip and this and that, and that's how it um, developed, and that sort of made it stick in a way. But no, I don't expect any great fanfare of leaving because I know the media and that's just chew you up and spit you out in most 
media industries these days. But you can't be too sentimental about that. I did feel like I was really appreciated by about 150 emails from readers when I put in the, the last column. And that was just so wonderful because I got lots of little anecdotes. I got anecdotes about it was the way their children first engaged with the paper and, you know, things like that were really nice. Yeah, I didn't need anything from, <laughs> you don't need anything from the media organisations. I think it's just, you know, part and parcel of being in this pressure cooker that media is, and especially in a small, you know, ever fragmenting situation for in New Zealand. None of us should get too full of ourselves. Uh, speaking of which, Sideswipe is actually older than RNZ's Media Watch. So I just wondered what it was like. Was there a sense of blessed freedom that you had there for a bit? No one looking over your shoulder? Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think it just snuck under the radar and wasn't real media until which point that I, I think I, um, I got a tip off from one of my um, readers that Close Up, um, which was fronted by Mark Sainsbury in those days, had done a story that was, you know, exactly the same as an AB story. So it was screams of plagiarism. And so I did a video showing the one from the ABC and the one from Close Up. And, um, you know, we, it was almost like Sideswipe was Media Watch in those days. And I remember um, I got a, a got, we got an apology from on air from Close Up. I think they were pretty um, mortified that they'd been caught out. But um, that was just an eagle-eyed reader and I just ran with it. But, um, yeah, you were the Media Watch. And actually you were kind of a bit of a consumer watchdog as well, right? Because you could people would spot weird things that they'd seen in the shops or complain about things that had happened to them and you would actually take that to the back page of the paper and get a discussion going. Well, that's, yeah, I, I, I hate um, people getting dicked over in, the, in that sense. Um, so I have a, 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 and it makes good content because people engage with being ripped off. They don't like being ripped off themselves. They don't like um, being, uh, you know, ripped off at all. And um, they engage with content that is calling that out. And so I'm not going to, I'm going to keep that going with the digital bonfire. I've got um, a regular feature called Quirky, uh, no, no, what is it? Uh, a Quirky, uh, Quirky Consumer Report. So I'm, I'm looking for things that are really just, come on, call this out. Don't, this is just trying to rip you off. Yeah, you mentioned that you're doing more opinion in the digital bonfire. The first one that came out, you were talking about the hot topic of the week, which is crime. And you went back over politicians talking about crime over the years. Can you talk about that? This has just become such a cliche for for the media, the hard on crime, soft on crime. And I was reading up on it and then I saw what Chester Burroughs had said in the spin-off and I just thought, well, yeah, that it's a nice reminder. It's not resolvable by slogans, this this issue. But for the punters to be aware leading up to the election that, you know, there are things that are just trotted out every year and you need to be a bit more savvier about what they actually mean. That's one of the benefits of your long tenure, right? You've got, you've seen things over the course of 21 years. You can see history repeating itself and you've been looking at those headlines for so long. Yeah, I think by virtue of being old, thanks, Hayden, very much. Uh, yeah. And you know all those things, they're just in, in there. So when these things start to happen again, you know, uh, in a different context, when mayors are caught out drinking wine, heading for bid, then you have some more context than perhaps someone who's a bit young. But I'm also not a political wonk, you know. I'm doing it from the point of view of just, just an ordinary punter, ordinary person. The other thing that we really want to raise with you, our research teams found that in 1993 you were named Young New Zealand Achiever of the Year. Can you explain what that award was actually for? 
right. I was 23. It was the TVNZ Young Achievers, and they gave out grants for people, mostly ballet dancers and fences. Cause, um, but I managed to squeeze in there with a, um, an award for writing a play. When I was 19, I wrote a black comedy uh, about my parents' dysfunctional man- marriage, and it, it got won a few awards, and you know, and I got to study it. NIDA for a couple of weeks doing a short course in writing for TV, and that was all pretty pretty good for a 19-year-old. Did that give you your in in the media? I think I found that the media was a legitimate way of writing, and I wanted to write. So, you know, you can only have a couple of playwrights every decade in New Zealand. You can make a living at it. And so I just thought this was a way of diversifying, you know, love of writing. So I've become more of a journalist than a creative writer now, but I'm still a pretty creative writing journalist. That's great. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on it and hopefully we will give you a call in less than 21 years. All right. <laughs> that would be great. Nice to speak to you, Anna. Nice to speak to you too, Hayden. Anna Samways, author of the new column Digital Bonfire, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. And Anna's column is available online as part of the new digital subscriptions offered by The Listener magazine, which is hosted on the website of the New Zealand Herald, where Anna's similar column Sideswipe ran from 2001 until May this year. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, there has been plenty of bad, or at least worrying news lately, about our economy. So it seemed like good news last Monday when the latest New Zealand Institute of Economic Research quarterly business confidence figures came out, showing business confidence had grown a little. But on closer inspection, that was only really a marginal decline in business people here who expect business conditions to get worse. Six out of ten of them still reckon they would. Not so great. But last week's ANZ business and consumer confidence figures were described as a solid bounce. And business writer Bernard Hickey said business and consumer confidence had both perked up sharply. And he wasn't the only one. Interest.co.nz said the BNZ's head of research, Stephen Topless, reckoned there's next to no chance of another cash rate hike and inflation could be down to 4.5% by the end of the year. Also sounding pretty positive. But on Wednesday, the government opened its crown accounts and stuff reported government debt was $5 billion above the budget forecast in May and the Herald said the budget deficit was deeper because the corporate tax take has fallen. And the BNZ's formerly optimistic Stephen Topless this time said the moribund expectations for future profitability were bad news for business, future employment and investment and the government, whose finances were already under pressure. Bummer. But on Monday, a new Productivity Commission report came out. So, any good news there? Well, New Zealand's productivity is one of the worst among the developed economies and needs serious long-term commitment and investment to turn it around. RNZ's Head of Business, Giles Beckford, there with more bad news last Monday. And the Chair of the Productivity Commission, Ganesh Nana, said we only seem to get productivity gains by working longer hours. We are producing... Stuff, more stuff by uh, putting more people in work, getting them working longer hours, um, uh, making bad decisions about how we are using up our environmental resources, uh, and all of that is not sustainable for the long term. So not great news there either, obviously, but last week... New Zealand is leading the way for a brighter future, said a global recruitment company called Remote, whose rankings, the Herald said, proves we really do live in the best place in the world. 
though the Herald didn't explain what woolly fleeces had to do with it, or world peace for that matter. But was it really likely that the rankings run off by a recruitment company seeking publicity would be more reliable than 50 years' worth of OECD data feeding into that international productivity report? When Newstalk ZB drive host Heather Duplessy-Allen asked if we really do have the world's best work-life balance, her guest Tim Wilson, spokesperson for the Maxim Institute think tank, said this. We beat Spain uh, and France. Uh, Spain number two, France is number three. Um, do we have a good work-life balance or are we as dysfunctional as they are? Because France, their economy's a basket case. I don't know what Spain's like. But just seconds later, he had no qualms in saying that Spain was an economic basket case as well. Maybe we don't need to worry about the outside world, Heather. We're too busy comparing ourselves to basket cases like Spain and France. We're just so chill. We're yeah, fine. Nick, what do you reckon? But the very same day, the Financial Times reported that Spain's inflation rate in June was down to just 1.9%, making it the first major Eurozone economy to beat the European Central Bank's 2% target in almost two years. Now, core inflation, which includes volatile energy and food prices, was higher in Spain, 5.9% in June, but still down from May and well below Germany's inflation. And it was all further evidence of a Spanish bounce back from a disastrous pandemic-era performance in 2021. And confusingly, Tim Wilson himself pointed out on the Maxim Institute website in 2021 that the household debt of 95% of GDP here was way worse than in what he called the ex-economic basket case of Spain. Now France, also dismissed as a basket case by Tim Wilson on News Talk ZB last week, clearly has problems right now with those riots following on from major actions over pension reform. But this week, the International Monetary Fund forecasts said the French economy will grow in 2023, while Germany and the UK are expected to shrink. Consumer price inflation in France was well under 6% last year, compared with 9.2% for the other European Union nations on average. And CNN recently reported foreign investors had poured nearly twice as much money into France last year as they did in 2021, and three times as much as they did the year before the pandemic in 2019. Now, Tim Wilson's basket case comment was probably just a throwaway line to make a point about this country rather than Spain or France, but he might want to check the news quickly before he sounds off about the performance of other nations in the national media here. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday with Midweek Media Watch during nights, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.